KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the case for disqualifying Trump as a candidate based on the 14th Amendment banning those who have engaged in insurrection from holding office. That case goes before the Supreme Court this week. Princeton historian Sean Wilentz has our analysis. Also, the nation's progressive honor roll, people who give us hope for 2024. John Nichols has that story. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the big news this week was that Tuesday, a federal appeals court unanimously rejected Trump's claim of immunity on the January 6th charges. Was there anything surprising about that? Empirically, based on, you know, the law and the facts, as we say, uh, no. That uh, was a pretty, uh, I think, a fairly cut and dry uh, case. In fact, so cut and dry that there is certainly a possibility that the Supreme Court will simply decide not to hear Trump's appeal. Uh, that is a possibility in which case the now delayed trial of uh, of Trump for uh, inciting the insurrection could take place fairly soon. It was put back from its March 4 uh, start date uh, because of the appeal, which the uh, appellate court has now uh, unanimously on the panel of three judges, including one, a Republican appointee, has now rejected that appeal. And so, um, it's supposed to be appealed to the Supreme Court by next week, and uh, we will see what the court does with it. Yeah, the legal pundits that I saw quoted thought that there really wasn't any question left for the Supreme Court to take up in the appeal, uh, and they were thinking there'd be a vote of like seven to two or something like that to turn it down. Yeah, it's an interesting question, how, just how much in the tank Sam Alito is. I mean, we uh, we we know Clarence Thomas. On on a question like this, I think Alito is probably the only uh, question mark among the justices. I think the others would clear. And of course, seven is two more than a majority, which is all <laughs> yeah. it takes. I think seven would agree uh, that there's no basis to uh, hear the appeal when, if it were to come to the court. So it seems pretty clear Trump is not going to win this case by claiming immunity. Really, his only hope is to delay this trial until after the November election. Yes, and there's polling, including uh, a a new poll today, that suggests this may be the one thing that really damages Trump. The one thing uh, which, uh, if he is in fact convicted for this, could uh, put Joe Biden over the top. So, you know, we shall see. And obviously, It has been a major Trump priority to delay, delay, delay this trial. In other news of Republican defeats, the House Republicans called a vote Tuesday to impeach the head of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, something they've been promising to do for months, but they lost by two votes. Was there anything surprising about that? Uh, Essentially, there were three Republican defections from you know, Republicans who not only have a rudimentary, at least, understanding of the Constitution and impeachment, but are willing to stand by it. One of whom is a 
classic right winger who's uh, was in the California legislature and now represents sort of the northeast corner of California uh, 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 forever. Tom McClintock did not vote to uh, impeach. It's it's interesting that these were not the three who voted uh, against impeaching are not part of the few moderates still remaining among the Republican Party, including Ken Buck from Colorado and McClintock and uh, the third guy from Wisconsin. These are uh, all right-wing Republicans, but just saying there's no impeachable offense here, which is, of course, the case. Meanwhile, here in Southern California, mail ballots for the March 5th primary have arrived in the hands of voters. Big one, of course, is the the Senate race where Adam Schiff is running against Katie Porter and Barbara Lee for the seat vacated by Dianne Feinstein. And Steve Garvey. Let's not forget Steve Garvey. That race has opened up Republican chances of retaking Katie Porter's seat in Irvine. Uh, which I want to talk about just for a minute, partly because Irvine has been the place I worked for the last 40 years. Uh, The right-wing pro-Israel group APAC has just jumped into that primary. They're spending uh, $50,000 on mail and half a million dollars on broadcast and cable ads attacking Dave Min. He's the Democrat who's been endorsed by Katie Porter, the California Democratic Party, and the LA Times. Dave Min is the only Korean American in the state Senate. He's a former law professor at UCI, like Katie Porter. He's a good Democrat in the legislature. He focused on gun violence, public education, and climate action. His opponent on the Democratic side is a woman litigator who's never run for office before named Joanna Weiss. Uh, Her mailer shows her on a surfboard, and she's gotten a million dollars from Emily's List, which, of course, funds pro-abortion women. She also got money from something called Pro-Israel America PAC, which gives pretty small contribution to Democrats. She's been endorsed by half a dozen women in Congress. Her website says she's for voting rights, reproductive rights, and climate action. The interesting thing is that although APAC is running half a million dollars worth of negative ads against Dave Min, there's no real difference between Dave Min and Joanna Weiss on Israel and Gaza. So why would APAC go after Dave Min? In the recent past, they've spent millions of dollars going after progressive Democrats in primaries, mostly people of color who haven't supported Netanyahu and uh, have supported a ceasefire in Gaza. Dave Min has not done those things. Yeah, I have no idea uh, what, what's what's going on here, although some of the money that pro-Israel Democrats or majority and so on have invested in races ostensibly around Israel really turns out to be kind of business money that is opposed to progressive positions on economics. So we have to consider that as a possibility here too. You know, some of the choices APAC has made, in particular going after Andy Levin in Michigan, who was uh, a a longtime established member of the House, who, you know, favored a two-state solution and opposed the policies of the Netanyahu government and as the president of his reform synagogue in his district in suburban Detroit, they, they went after him. You know, s- s- some of this stuff is really just doctrinal uh, Netanyahu 
uh, support. And, and some of this sometimes really is, is just a, uh, a cloak for a more right-wing economic agenda. Well, just another couple of minutes on this uh, race. Dave Min has, is now running an, an ad attacking Joanna Weiss. Her husband made millions defending Catholic priests found guilty of molesting children in Orange County, money that Joanna is using to fund her campaign. Those aren't the values we want in Congress. And, and it's true that her husband, an attorney named Jason Weiss, did defend the Catholic Diocese of Orange County in multiple sex abuse uh, cases. So the two Democrats are slugging it out with negative ads that cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Meanwhile, the Republicans are quietly united behind Scott Baugh. He's a former Republican member of the state legislature who ran against Katie Porter in 2022 and lost by four points. Uh, he says he's for lower taxes, more freedom, and strong borders. The district voted against Trump last time, but Republicans are hoping to be able to retake it this time now that Katie Porter is gone. Well, since Katie Porter, in many ways, is to the left of both of the Democratic nominees, that seems a bit of a non sequitur to uh, conclude that uh, the Republicans have a better chance. I do think an attack based on defending Catholic priests uh, who uh, who were uh, accused of molesting kids uh, should, uh, you would normally expect that would carry some weight. Yes, thank you. Thank you for your judicious uh, phrasing yes, there. Yes. And in national politics, the most interesting news I thought this week was that Nikki Haley raised $16 million in January, her biggest monthly fundraising total to date. Uh, this included $12 million from digital and direct mail outreach and 69,000 new donors. So this is not just a couple of you know wealthy anti-Trump Republicans. Uh, she says she is raising enough to, to stay in the race for a while now. I think that's good news because it will continue to drive Trump crazy. Yes, this doesn't mean there's anywhere where she commands a majority of uh, Republican voters. In a, in a non-binding primary in Nevada earlier this week, she actually lost to a uh, none-of-the-above slate since <laughs> Trump was not on the ballot in, in, this, uh, in this primary. But there's no question that she has become, or her campaign treasury has become the receptacle of, of donations coming from anti-Trumpers who are Republican or independent, or I'm probably sure some Democrats. I mean, you know, it's uh, this, by the way, in classic Trump fashion, has infuriated him, the fact that she's still in the field, to the point that uh, he's probably about to get the Republican National Committee to sack Ronald McDaniel, who keeps saying so long as there's an ongoing race in the uh, Republican primary, she can't devote party resources uh, solely, you know, and simply to to Donald Trump, and that's probably a uh, sufficient, uh, uh, you know, sin uh, for her to get act. The other interesting thing about Nikki Haley is that she is now uh, running ads ridiculing Trump for being too old. 
This is kind of skating dangerously close to the line uh, here. I mean, Biden is in these ads, too. She shows both Biden and Trump blundering, making embarrassing mistakes and looking old. Um, Doesn't help Biden, but I don't think it helps Trump at all. No, it doesn't. And actually, if you think about it, since she can't really attack Trump on policy because there are no scene, A, Trump doesn't really personify particular policies, but to the degree he does, they kind of typify the current Republican Party. Uh, her biggest point of differentiation with him uh, is, is gender and age. The gender is implicit. The age is now explicit. One other point of Republican dysfunction this week, we, we're accustomed to the Republican House being unable to pass its own legislation, elect its own speaker, and so on. But this week, the Republican Senate, which had vowed to put together a a border control bill that, you know, comported to what they wanted as a condition for passing aid to uh, Ukraine and Israel, got the bill and just like Republicans in the House decided to vote against it because it wasn't uh, maximal and it wasn't uh, the product of uh, Donald Trump, but something that Joe Biden had agreed to. We, We were saying that the Republican House is completely dysfunctional and unable to, you know, to govern in any way, shape, or form. This is now true of the Republican caucus in the Senate. And I understand that this uh, negotiated deal on border security was supported by the Wall Street Journal editorial page and the Border Patrol Union, which supported Trump in, in 2020. And of course, it was supported by the Senate Republican leadership until a couple of days ago. This is increasingly a party, the uh, case for whose election to Congress grows steadily more mysterious. Now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, regular feature of this program. The NLRB has ruled that members of Dartmouth's men's basketball team are university employees and thus may take a vote on forming a union. This would make Dartmouth the first unionized college sports program in the country. Uh, The background here is that in September 2021, Jennifer Abruzzo, our hero and general counsel of the NLRB, said college athletes should be considered employees under federal labor law, citing a Supreme Court ruling that year that college sports was a profitable enterprise. Dartmouth says their athletes are not paid and the program loses money, so they don't qualify for unionization. What do you say? Well, look, there's no question that Dartmouth basketball isn't quite the moneymaker of, let us say, Notre Dame football, but it's clearly a profit center, college athletics are, for you know, virtually every college in the country that, that has uh, athletics, they, they make money on people coming to see and, uh, you know, and then on on the higher end sports, uh, they're part of deals with uh, various television networks to cover the games. And, you know, it's it's absolutely appropriate and in keeping with uh, what we've seen from Jennifer Bruzzo and the NLRB and in keeping from what we've seen from college and university students employed as teaching assistants or residence assistants or research assistants overwhelmingly at about a 90% rate voting to unionize. So, you know, this is, uh, 
a shoe that you, one, one had to think would drop. I, or I, I should say perhaps a sneaker that <laughs> one uh, suppose would drop in a day. Excellent, excellent. And I would add that this is yet another case of the argument you have made about what kind of employees succeed at unionizing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at all the people who have unionized over the past couple of years, they're overwhelmingly people who cannot be fired during because uh, they, they can't easily be replaced, be they a university's teaching assistants, certainly their athletes, uh, museum docents, uh, workers, professionals at nonprofits. Uh, you know, the basic tactic of American employers when workers seek to unionize is intimidating them by firing them. But you can't fire workers who can't really be replaced. This week, the UAW noted that more than half the workers at Volkswagen's plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, have signed union affiliation cards, and more than 30% have at several Hyundai uh, plants uh, also in the South. And so building off the significant momentum of its victory in its strike against the big three, the UAW is engaged in what I think is clearly the most serious uh, campaign to unionize workers who can normally be fired. And uh, we'll see how this goes. But, you know, I, I think a lot rests on the success of, of this campaign in particular. And there's a new uh, CNN poll out uh, this week that asked U.S. adults what they think about the things Trump promises to do if he becomes president again, just very briefly. Detain and deport millions of undocumented immigrants, 48% of adults agree. Repeal Obamacare, 39% agree. Fire federal employees who oppose implementing Trump's policies, 34% agree. Direct the Department of Justice to in investigate his political rivals, 31% agree. Pardon most of the people convicted of crimes in the January 6th attack, 31% agree. Pardon himself for any crimes he may have committed, 28% agree. <clears throat> so it's pretty striking that there's no nothing that gets more than 50%. The closest is uh, immigration and the border, and it's still below 50%. Yes, well, Trump isn't really running on issues, on platforms. He's running on uh, on zeitgeist, on uh, uh, people's still dissatisfaction with uh, with Joe Biden. Uh, but you know, as you get down to the latter questions that you were talking about, what we're seeing is there's you know a, about one third of the of the public is the Republican base. And they're going to stick with Trump uh, no matter what he does. Uh, but, you know, uh, once you get past that base, it's not at all clear who else is uh, is with them and who else is with him. One last thing. Getting back to that unanimous court of appeals ruling denying Trump's claim of immunity to criminal prosecution. Uh, afterwards, he... Uh, stayed up late sending dozens of tweets from his Truth Social account, a typical kind of Trump temper tantrum. The last one, late Monday night, I just want to read it, all caps. If immunity is not granted to a president, 
Every president that leaves office will be immediately indicted by the opposing party. Without complete immunity, a president of the United States would not be able to properly function, exclamation point. Wonder if you have any comment. I think in psychology, that's called projection. That which applies to me, I guess, clearly must apply to uh, everyone else, whereas really it just applies to me and what I uniquely have done. Or as he said in his 2016 acceptance speech, I alone can fix it and I alone can go to the clink. <laughs> the Psychological Theory of Projection. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. This week, the Supreme Court hears the arguments in a historic case, whether the Constitution prohibits Trump from running for re-election in November because he participated in an insurrection, which makes him ineligible under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. For comment, we turn to Sean Wilentz, he teaches history at Princeton. His latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. We talked about it here. He also writes for the New York Times, the New Republic, Rolling Stone, and the New York Review, where the current issue features his essay about Trump and the 14th Amendment. Sean, welcome back. Great to be here, John. Well, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, says that those who had taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States are barred from holding office if they, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion, close quote. Mm -hmm. Nobody really paid any attention to that clause until uh, historian Eric Foner pointed out in the Washington Post just after the January 6th insurrection that it prohibits Trump from running again. Several states took up that idea, including Colorado, where the decision to ban Trump from the primary ballot was approved by the state Supreme Court. Trump appealed that to the Supreme Court in Washington, which is hearing arguments about it this week. I want to start with the significance of this case right now. It focuses on Trump, but the issue is bigger than Trump. Absolutely. I mean, the issue is as old as the Civil War and Reconstruction and the meaning of the Civil War, uh, what those amendments were about, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. They've been described as trying to, I don't know, mollify the South or, or help the, bind up the nation's wounds. That was not the case. It was trying to consolidate and formalize a social revolution, which was the abolition of slavery. And part of that was to make sure that implacable Confederates who were doing their best to try to undo the abolition of slavery, come as close as they could to reinstalling slavery to make sure that they would never have a chance to be involved in, in, in government again, to exclude them. If they had taken an oath already to support the Constitution of the United States, in that case, if they then join the, 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 the insurrection, the rebellion, uh, then they can never hold office again. That was the point, was to protect American democracy from things that electoral, that you know, mere electoral politics can't protect it from. 
you know, these people could get elected. They could have done all sorts of terrible things. If you have engaged in an insurrection once, there is no reason to believe that you won't do it again. That's what the framers of the 14th Amendment understood. That's what they said. And that's why they passed this particular part of the amendment. Well, I'd like to go through the arguments Trump and his defenders have made about why the 14th Amendment, Section 3, does not apply to him. That's the subject of your new article in the New York Review. Uh, Some of the arguments seem pretty ridiculous. Trump's lawyers argue that he should not be kept off the ballot because the amendment bars people from holding specific offices, not from running for them or from being elected to them. Nevertheless, Ted Cruz and 178 other MAGA members of Congress argue in an amicus brief that, quote, a candidate may be elected president even if he is not qualified to hold the office, close quote. I wonder if you have any comment on that. My view is that these guys, in splitting hairs, the way they have done, they've managed to cut off Trump's head. Because this is absurd. They're, they're seizing on what language they can in the amendment and the wording of the amendment. None of it makes any difference. The fact is, if you've done actually what the court tries to do, an originalist reading of the language of where it came from, in every single case, it makes it absolutely clear that the Fourth Amendment was drafted, was was uh, framed and ratified in order to prevent someone like Donald Trump ever being you know, in office again. That is absolutely clear. They were looking to the future. They weren't simply talking about the Civil War. They weren't what they called the Great Rebellion. They weren't simply talking about that. They were talking about all for all eternity under the Constitution of the United States. If you're an insurrectionist, you cannot hold office. Very, very clear. You know, the, the most significant argument made by Trump's defenders is that what happened on January 6th was not an insurrection. It was, it was something less than that, like, I don't know, violent protest. But what is an insurrection? The question of what is an insurrection is one that there's a history behind. Yes. And as I said, uh, as I wrote in the piece, a very distinguished, very able um, legal historian named Mark Graber at the University of Maryland has actually done the originalist work for them. I mean, has has gone back and tried to figure out. He's gone back as far as Edward III in order to establish what an insurrection meant to the framers of the 14th Amendment. And there is a long history to it, but there's a more immediate history to it. And in particular, looking at um, decisions that John Marshall made, lots of things. He came up with a four-ply, you know, um, there are four things that constitute what an insurrection is. And you'll have it in front of you, John. Number one, an assemblage of people. Number two, engaged in resisting a federal law. Three, using force or the threat of force with intimidating numbers. Four, with a public purpose, an object of great public concern. And, no, and that fourth is really the thing that makes it so so powerful. I mean, there are a lot of you know, demonstrations and stuff that you can talk about that would have the first three, right? They're trying to obstruct the government. Well, but having a large public purpose, which goes to what Trump tried to do, which was to you know, basically overturn a presidential election, or at least to, to inhibit the, um, to, to prevent the counting of the Electoral College votes in um, coming out of the 2020 election. That's a great public purpose. So the events of January 6th, but not just January 6th, everything leading up to January 6th, fit those four to a T. You know, once again, originalism actually works to Trump's disadvantage. And if the court is going to go by its own theories of American jurisprudence, it has no alternative but to disqualify Donald Trump. 
Who was it who said that January 6th, was, quote, was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election? Close quote. Was that Bernie Sanders? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It was none other than Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. Now, one of the points I'm trying to make through all of this is that the Republican Party no longer exists. As you know, John, as an historian, parties come and parties go in American history. There's nothing sacrosanct about political parties. We had a Federalist Party. It died. We had a Whig Party. It died. Well, we had a Republican Party, and it's dead. It's been dead since at least 2016, although maybe it took until a little bit later to get the uh, the obituaries written. But the fact is that it is now the Trump Party, the MAGA Party, whatever you want to call it. There is no Republican Party um, that Trump's trying to get the nomination for. Trump is the party. And it's, it's been that way for some time. And you can see it perfectly with Mitch McConnell. You quoted him absolutely right in the aftermath of the, um, of, uh, of the insurrection. He called it an insurrection. He said it very, very plainly, very clearly. Well, you also made reference to the, 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 MAGA, the MAGA congressman suit that Ted Cruz worked up. Mitch McConnell signed <laughs> that amicus brief, which denies that, that Donald Trump was involved in an insurrection. So the kowtowing to Trump is beyond kowtowing. They are now MAGA. They are now MAGA, MAGA party members. So the illusion that there is a, a, a Republican Party anymore means that all the trappings that we're following up in this election year, you know, the idea that there was a, an Iowa primary, well, there wasn't an Iowa. There was. It was just you know, it was a diversion chance for Trump to make a few more speeches, get some more money, more grift. There's nothing like a competition here. Trump is the party. And if we understand that, then we understand what the election's about. After the argument that it wasn't an insurrection, the lawyers have a second argument. Even if January 6th was an insurrection, Trump wasn't part of it. His own brief says, quote, Trump never participated in or directed any of the illegal conduct that occurred at the Capitol on January 6th. The speech that he gave to the insurrectionists before they marched to the Capitol didn't explicitly encourage insurrection. Uh, the, his brief says, quote, telling supporters to metaphorically fight like hell for their beliefs is not insurrection. In fact, it's protected by the First Amendment. Trump has a First Amendment right to argue uh, that voter fraud was the basis of Biden's victory. What do you say to that? What I want to say to that was, first of all, that Donald Trump had been tweeting people to come to Washington where it would be wild, as he put it. Trump was in perfect, perfectly aware of what was going on and what was being plotted on January 6th, and he helped plot it. It's not just the events of January 6th, it's everything that leads up to it. That's what Jack Smith in fact, is investigating right now. So the idea that, you, that he didn't march to the Capitol as he had promised to do, but <laughs> perhaps being too much of a coward to do so, perhaps um, he didn't do so. Nevertheless, you know, it's everything leads up to it as well. So that's number one. Number two, he was aware that there were people in the audience, in his audience, that had weapons, that were armed, armed to the teeth. He had been he had been advised of that in advance of his giving that speech. When you tell a group of armed supporters to go to the Capitol and fight like hell, you are inciting an insurrection. Okay, here's another argument. If the government thinks Trump is guilty of insurrection, he should be put on trial before a jury of his peers and given the right to defend himself. And indeed, that's the Jack Smith trial will decide that issue. And the Supreme Court should wait 
for that verdict before taking up the argument about disqualifying him as a candidate. Actually, the Jack Smith, he actually hasn't charged Trump with insurrection. So the trial, will, there's no, you're not going to wait for it. But it's all irrelevant anyway, because the fact is a conviction for insurrection is not necessary for disqualification under the 14th Amendment. I mean, they are very, very clear about that. Indeed, there has been already somebody disqualified from office, thrown out of office because of participation in January 6th. And that's a county commissioner in New Mexico named Griffin, who was actually the guy who founded Cowboys for Trump, if I'm not mistaken, okay. who was a county commissioner who, and, and a court just threw him out on the on the basis of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So, you know, are, are we supposed to believe that a county commissioner from New, New Mexico who was a foot soldier in January 6th, you know, can be deprived of his job, can be thrown out of his office, thrown out of office on the basis not of any conviction. He was not convicted of insurrection. He was just thrown out because he participated. It was automatic. They just affirmed what had already happened because he had, in, he had in effect, disqualified himself by inv getting involved in the thing. Oh, so we're we supposed to get rid of this poor cowboy for Trump, and yet the mastermind is allowed to get away with it? The guy who was behind the whole thing? Please, give me a break. This is, this is a totally false argument. Immediately after the Civil War, there were several disqualifications. None of those people was either convicted of a crime, nor was it um, anything that Congress got involved in. This is about disqualification from office. This is not about punishment for a crime. This is a very, very different thing. So conviction of a crime has nothing to do with it. The New York Times Supreme Court reporter Adam Liptak says the primary argument of Trump's own lawyers was that Section 3 does not apply to Trump because, quote, the president is not an officer of the United States, as that term is used in the Constitution. This is... The primary argument. I know, sad, isn't it? it's pathetic. <laughs> Look, they have no choice here. You know, if you have to seize upon the fact that the man who was sent to the office of the presidency of the United States, that he is not an officer after <laughs> he swore an oath to become an officer, is really pretty lame. It's true that the language of the 40th Amendment leaves the president out. And there were some people at the time um, in the Senate, actually, if you want to get originalist about it, in the Senate, Reverdy Johnson, who was a senator at the time, who had been an attorney general earlier, no big deal. He questioned, he raised the issues. I'm not sure that this covers the president and the vice president. And he was answered quite directly, yes, it covers the president and the vice president. It was explained to him on the floor of the Senate why that was the case. And Reverdy Johnson then said, well, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. I got it wrong. It's very clear that the framers were of the amendment. We're, we're purposely including the president and the vice president as officers of the United States, or it's officers under the United States in the wording. So they're saying he, maybe he's an officer of the United States, but not under the United. This is it, it's inc it's incredible. I mean, this is this is the kind of shyster lawyering that we're used to, you know, seeing on you know really bad TV shows. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, Joe Pesci does a better job than these guys are doing. So that's a movie I know, but still, it's ridiculous. But but look, ridiculous lawyering can get you a lot of can get you far with the Supreme Court, um, as we saw in 2000, um, you know, ridiculous. So we all know this court has a Republican appointed majority. They seem unlikely to rule Trump off the ballot, and they will search for some way of doing that. What do you think about that? Probably likely. I, I don't doubt it. Um, you know, um, the Supreme Court in 2000 already disgraced itself with Bush v. Gore maybe the worst decision since the Dred Scott decision. They could do that again. Uh, but I wouldn't have written the piece if I hadn't thought that there wasn't a possibility 
for um, the um, some of the members, some of the conservative majority, to see their own place in history and to understand that you know if if they were to try to find that sneaky corrupt way out, um, that they're going to look very very bad. And I think some of the conservative justices, not all of them, I don't think that Alito and Thomas give a hoot, but um, but the others do. They might, they could. Um, I've seen I've seen evidence that they could. And if not, well, then there's another possibility, which is that we will have given, you know, Justices Sotomayor and Jackson and Kagan the um, materials for a really powerful dissent. And as you know, in history, John, I mean, sometimes dissents outlast the actual bad decisions. Um, and, and I think, look, what did Dred Scott do? Dred Scott elected Abraham Lincoln president for all intents and purposes. Bad decisions don't necessarily, the, 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 the narrow political thing does not necessarily play well politically. And if this is shown to be, as I hope people will see, as corrupt a decision as that would be, well, then all to the good. Finally, there's an argument that's not really a constitutional one, but a, a political one. It would be better for American democracy if the voters rejected Trump than if the court prevented them from doing that. Voters should be given the opportunity and the responsibility of affirming the vitality of democratic elections as a way of defending the democratic process. Jonathan Chait, who's a writer for New York Magazine, said that to disqualify Trump, quote, would be seen forever by tens of millions of Americans as a negation of democracy, close quote. So let the people decide. That's like saying that we would have alienated tens of millions of Confederates if we had not gone through with uh, the abolition of slavery, so we should not alienate them. This is crazy. This And actually, John, this is the most dangerous argument of all. It's, it's the argument that goes to the core of what American democracy is. People are saying that to disqualify Trump would negate democracy, right? Not giving the people the chance. The fact is, Donald Trump has already tried to negate American democracy, and he came perilously close to doing so. And that was why the 14th Amendment was there, is that people who engage in these things should not be allowed to run for office again, should not be able to hold office again. So the people who are saying this are claiming that the enforcement of the absolute clear letter and spirit of the Constitution of the United States is a greater threat to democracy than the candidacy of Donald Trump. To argue this way is not only being misguided, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what American democracy is about. We have a constitution. The constitution lays out what the effect the rules are. The Constitution, in the aftermath of the revolution of the Civil War, the revolution of the abolition of slavery, understood that there were threats to democracy, right, uh, that, that, that had to be, that, that required a constitutional solution, constitutional remedy. Democracy could be undone, and electoral politics cannot protect it. It required a constitutional um, a remedy. And that's what the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is. To misunderstand that is to misunderstand what American democracy is all about. In fact, it enables the threats to democracy, in which Donald Trump very much manifestly is, in, in the name of, of, of democracy itself. Trump's own brief to the Supreme Court says that ruling against him would, quote, unleash chaos and bedlam, close quote. Uh, that sort of sounds like a threat, doesn't it? It is a threat. It is a threat. And I'm sick of these people pushing us around. As if we're supposed to quail in front of the Trump base? I mean, this actually makes me angry, as you can hear. I mean, I'm, I'm angry at people saying, oh, 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 these people are going to kill people. Yeah, they might. They might. They might. But that's their crime. And we're the United States of America, and we can stop them. 
We are a government. Lincoln was criticized in 1860-61 for standing up to the secessionists. Oh no, oh no, they're gonna do terrible things, people said. And Lincoln said, no, the tug must come. Now is the time. We gotta stand up to them now or we're not gonna be able to stand up to them ever. Now is the time. I think that Trump is as much of a danger to American democracy as the Confederacy was. And um, I, I stand with Lincoln. Now is the time. Sean Wilentz, he wrote about the case for disqualification for the New York Review. Thank you, Sean. This was good. Thank you, John, as ever. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Last year was a rough one. The rise of Trump and Israel's war in Gaza left a lot of us feeling dread, outrage, and despair. But we also have leaders and activists who show us how to keep fighting and give us reasons for hope. Some of the best are featured in the nation's annual progressive honor roll. And for that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation, the author of many books. Most recently, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, co-authored by Bernie Sanders. He puts together the magazine's annual progressive honor roll. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you. One of the exciting parts of 2023 was the unprecedented summer of strikes led by the United Auto Workers, which had a brilliant and creative strategy that forced General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis to agree to historic pay increases for almost 150,000 auto workers and put the union at the center of the fight to define the future of electric vehicles. At the top of this year's progressive honor roll, you have Sean Fain, president of the UAW, our class warrior, most of us had never heard of Sean Fain until the last year or so. Well, that's right. He wasn't the head of the UAW until the last year or so. He uh, he ran as a dissident, an outsider against the uh, old leadership of the UAW. And his argument was that it needed to become uh, what it once was, a militant union. Unlike some politicians who win elections and don't keep their promises, he kept his promise. Fain came into the leadership of the UAW uh, in the spring. And by the summer, they were in the thick of these negotiations with the big three automakers. And uh, you can imagine, you know, the pressure on the guy. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. this is stuff of cinema almost. You know, you're newly elected, you're a dissident, you're an outsider, you're changing up everything. And then suddenly you've got the biggest fight of your life on your hands. Uh, it would have been understandable, I think, to many people if Fain had gone a cautious route. But that wasn't what he was elected to do. He went a aggressive route asking for really high pay increases, for a restructuring of how the industry did a lot of things, and you know all sorts of kind of visionary proposals, even proposals borrowed from European industrial unions for a four-day week and things of that nature. He didn't get, and the union, his activists, didn't get everything they asked for, but they got a lot. They got an epic deal. What makes Sean Fain unique among labor leaders of the last several decades is that he talks about organizing 
not just the non-union auto plants. He has declared the UAW's goal is to activate the entire working class economically and politically. And he talks about a lot more than higher wages. He's really a social justice uh, militant. Uh, in a speech last week, he talked about the right to love who one chooses. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, when, re- when reporters asked him about immigrants at the border, he said they were like most immigrants of earlier generations, desperate people just seeking a safe and decent life. You talked about restoring the UAW to what it once was, and it once was in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s, the anchor of of liberalism. And let's add right now, uh, unions provide probably the best way to win the white working class away from Trump. There's one other thing too, just to emphasize. Trump came in and said that if the union got its goals, um, they would you know, destroy the companies. The jobs would go overseas, the plants would close. Well, I just would let you know that uh, they just today were announcing some very big profit sharing that's gonna go to the workers. So in addition to this new contract, they're gonna get profit sharing. The companies aren't closing down, they aren't leaving. Once again, Donald Trump was wrong. Next on the nation's progressive honor roll are Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Lutun Atabua. They've led the way in providing hope for the planet. Their project is called It's Not Too Late. We actually featured them on the podcast last year, but remind us about Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Lutun Atabua and It's Not Too Late. Well, between you and I, uh, we're probably the Rebecca Solnit fan club anyway. Yeah. Uh, and because uh, Solnit, as a philosopher, has uh, staked out this argument that that hope is different than optimism. Optimism, you just think things are going to turn out fine. Hope says you got to work at it. But it does say that if you work at it, there's the possibility that uh, you can make the big change. And she and Thelma uh, have been very, very committed to a kind of a reframing of the climate discussion and to say that, yes, we have a crisis. It is a severe crisis. But there are so many things happening now that make it possible to address that crisis. So rather than you know simply thinking, oh, it's overwhelming, we've, we've run out of time, we have the technology, uh, we have a growing consciousness. If we put this to work, we can actually address the climate crisis and create a circumstance where we do have good jobs, safe and protected environment, and, and a real future for all of us, particularly for uh, working class and low income folks. They have a great uh, website, nottoolateclimate.com. There are still important choices to make about climate. Uh, We know individual actions matter, but in order to have effective change, it will take mass action. We know the difference between the best and worst case scenarios matters. We know that the future is being decided in the present. We know that a lot of people are overwhelmed by doom and gloom but it is not too late. It's from the website of nottoolateclimate.com. Next, we turn to Israel's war against the Palestinians in Gaza. October 7th, Hamas attacked. Israel killed 1,200 people, mostly civilians. Then Israel invaded Gaza. As of this uh, week, there are more than 27,000 Palestinians reported killed. Among progressives, the initial response to the war was was clumsy and confusing, but three leaders emerged to steer the ship. And those are the ones honored uh, the nation's progressive honor roll. 
Beth Miller, the political director of Jewish Voices for Peace. Abbas Alawea, I think I'm pronouncing that right, A-L-A-W-I-E-H. Former chief of staff to Cori Bush and Eva Borgwart, the political director of If Not Now. Tell us about them. These folks scaled up immediately. They did so in a very collaborative and very well-coordinated way at a point when there needed to be an alternative answer to simply supporting Israel's assault on Gaza, they offered that alternative. And that alternative was the ceasefire now resolution in the House that called on the Biden administration to exhaust every diplomatic tool to end the assault on Gaza. And they offered it working with members of Congress, working with people in communities across the United States, recognizing the need for a multiracial, multiethnic, and multireligious coalition. The successes seen in the, the extent of the movement that we see in the United States right now, the, the movement for a ceasefire right now in the United States is one of the biggest foreign policy-related movements in the history of the country. It's huge. And it's maybe it stumbles at times, but it's often very focused, very coordinated, and one of the reasons for that is these three people. And let me just add that If Not Now has a particularly good website, ifnotnowmovement.org. Most Americans uh, know less than they think they do about Palestine. And as you point out, that includes most members of Congress to bring historical perspectives on this war. The nation's progressive honor roll has named Rashid Khalidi the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia. Uh, please explain his contribution. Well, he was there right at the start, immediately, um, because he is such a respected academic and because he's been a spokesman and a, a writer, a researcher on these issues for such a long time. Uh, there's a lot of media that turned to him, not just left media or progressive media, but also you know a lot of so-called mainstream media. And, and he was there with a smart, nuanced, detailed discussion, which had great regard for the circumstance of the Palestinian people, understood the dynamics between Palestine and Israel, recognized the horror of what happened on October 7th, but also said, look, we don't need more horror. The United States was very lucky to have this, this individual at the ready uh, to step up and speak about these issues in deep and fundamental, and again, very nuanced ways. Rashid Khalidi uh, wrote uh, one of the first opinion pieces uh, about the war for the uh, New York Times op-ed page. Uh, he concluded, the only possible solution is one that ends the oppression of one people by another and guarantees absolutely equal rights and security for both peoples. And the nation in this context also honors one newspaper, the Israeli daily Haaretz, which a lot of us find to be indispensable for daily news about Gaza and about Israeli politics. Yeah, we there are actually quite a few sources that are very good. And I think uh, Al Jazeera deserves recognition for some of the very good work that they've done. And then if I could just give one uh, shout out to Jewish Currents here in the US, uh, which I think has been doing really important work. Uh, but Katrina Vandenhoevel, our editor, uh, wanted to particularly focus on, on Haaretz for a reason. Uh, this newspaper is, uh, it's a mainstream daily newspaper in Israel. It's on the left. There's no question of that, but it is widely circulated, widely read. And it has said from day one, this crisis is Netanyahu's crisis. His policies, his approaches have made things worse. 
they've had nuanced and complex coverage of all the stuff that's going on, both within Israel and in Palestine, for a tremendous number of Americans. This particular newspaper became an essential source of information. And that's one of the reasons why we included it in this list. Yeah, I want to recommend the the daily brief, which comes via email from haaretz.com, H-A-A-R-E-T-Z.com. Uh, one more uh, I'd like to highlight from the Nation Honor Roll, somebody I'd never heard of, Alison Spillman. <laughs> I learned from you that she challenged the right-wing effort to take over her local school board by running as a candidate and winning yep. in Charlottesville, Virginia. This was part of a wave of hyper-local organizing that turned out to be the key to the Democrats uh, holding Virginia in 2023. Uh, tell us about Allison Spillman. Well, our, our great national correspondent, Joan Walsh, really wanted to focus on, on this one, and, and for good reason. Yeah, as you know, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about the right-wing efforts to, over, to take over school boards, right? And they don't just want to take over school boards. They want to ban books. They want to you know shut down programs that, that aid LGBTQ youth. Um, there's all sorts of, of aspects of this culture war assault via the school boards. And if you read the media, a lot of the major media, you'd think the right was winning all over the place. The reality is, Randy Weingarten and other folks will tell you, is that uh, progressives are actually doing very, very well in school board races across the country as they step up and say, hey, um, we want well-funded schools, we want teachers to be respected, and we frankly want to teach children the whole of what's going on, not some narrow you know, right-wing agenda. And it came to a head in in, uh, in Virginia there in this particular school board race where you had um, Antonin Scalia's daughter running <laughs> as the conservative candidate, right? I mean, somebody and I newsflash, you know, if you got those kinds of contacts, you can raise a lot of money, right? So you had a conservative candidate who was raising a substantial amount of money, not running far right wing, kind of trying to position as a little more thoughtful, uh, but real concerns. And then you see um, a, a more progressive candidate step up and Allison Spillman, who um, you know, basically said, look, we gotta be careful here. If we lose our school board to the right, um, even in this relatively liberal town, we're gonna end up in a place where we don't wanna be. Uh, we're gonna be talking about you know, what books can be read, you know, what programs can be you know, organized, how we teach, et cetera, like that, in ways that frankly disrespect teachers and disrespect the, the basic premises of education. She was very thoughtful in her race. She ran as a candidate who had kids in the schools, which is always a good thing. Um, and uh, she didn't just win, she won big. And it was, I, I, focusing on this race is important because it was an important race in and of itself, but it also serves as a marker for races in communities across this country. And what it tells us is that progressives, A, should run for the school board and B, um, that if they do, they can run as progressives with a with a bold, thoughtful, smart vision, and they can win. Well, we don't have time to talk about the other people on the nation's progressive honor roll for 2023. Members of Congress, Cory Bush and Jamie Raskin, Senator Jeff Merkley, those legislators in Tennessee who led the fight against guns, Justin Pearson, Justin Jones, and Gloria Johnson, and musician Tom Morello. Uh, I'm also leaving out young supporters of abortion rights. Maybe we should put in a plug for the young people of Wisconsin here. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it's a very, that's sort of a, almost a vague, uh, you know, title to honor. 
But uh, the fact of the matter is, if you look back at, at 2023 and even in 2022, and you want to say, well, who came into the process? Who came into the political process and tipped the balance uh, toward progressive victories? Uh, it was very often college students, young, young voters, uh, often motivated by their concern about reproductive rights. And in the state of Wisconsin, as an example, we had massive youth turnout last April when uh, Janet Protasiewicz was elected to the state Supreme Court, flipping control of the Supreme Court to a liberal majority and um, beginning a process that is likely to protect abortion rights, as well as likely to restore democracy to Wisconsin by getting rid of gerrymandering. So uh, you want to you give a lot of people credit in 2023, but uh, I, if there's a line and we got to get in it, I'm going to get in that line behind the young people who are coming in and casting the votes that are transforming our politics. Read about all of them at thenation.com. John Nichols, thanks for talking with us today. Always an honor to be with you, John. That's it for Living in the USA for today. Our producer and social media maven is Renee Reynolds. Our audio editor is Alan Minsky. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at applepodcast.com, Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Thank you.